Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day we bring you the most noteworthy and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find a Bloomberg PL Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts, as well as at Bloomberg.com. There was a minute there when a reflation trade was taking hold and people were expecting a steepening of the yield curve, an increase in future inflation expectations. What happened? Because we are seeing right now the ninth straight day of yield curve flattening. Drew Mattis, Chief Market Strategist for MetLife Investment Management, joining us right now um, from Whippany, New Jersey. Drew, thank you so much for being here. I want to start with the flattening yield curve and get your sense of how important it is to keep track of nine straight days, the longest stretch since November 2015 of yield curve flattening in the U.S. Well, I don't think it's a coincidence when you, you know, the good days are days when the curve steepening and you can see that uh, across markets and you can see people's optimism begin to rise and people begin to think, hey, we're heading towards a more normal environment. Um, and then you have the days of flattening where, you know, you can have up days in, in the market despite that. Um, but people become a, a little more concerned about what the future might hold. Um, and of course, you can you can argue the causation is working one way or the other. Uh, but I think broadly speaking, what we want to see is a steepening yield curve. I think what the Fed wants to see is a steepening yield curve. What they want is a curve that's steep enough that if they want to, they could actually hike rates again. Not that that's on their mindset for something near term, but longer term, they'd like to see things normalized enough where they could push rates higher again. Do you think the we even have any green shoots of that as it relates to the underlying economy? Uh, well, I, I think if you're the Fed and you've been blaming kind of uncertainty on, on kind of why you were cutting to begin with, uh, you know, we have seen some movement on trade. Uh, we're seeing some movement in Europe. Um, lots of areas of uncertainty are becoming, um, we're beginning to see pathways uh, that, towards less uncertainty. So a conclusion being reached um, or moving towards that conclusion. The, the problem we have now is that there are so many different things and there are so many potential outcomes comes from trade and from uh, politics and from uh, the European story that uh, because there's so such complexity there, you can't figure out how to price everything. And so people then default to I'm going to be risk on or I'm going to be risk off uh, because they really can't put a value on all the things that are going on right now. That said, you've seen a steady decline or at least uh, remaining stable of five-year, five-year uh, for break-even rates. In other words, another gauge of future inflation. You're not seeing a concept of reflation taking hold in broader derivative and, and bond markets. And I'm just wondering whether that signals that the Fed really ought to cut rates again. Well, I, you know, I, I don't think so. I think, you know, first of all, you know, the headline of or current inflation that the Fed follows, is actually very close to their target. So even when they were cutting rates and saying inflation's not high enough, they were actually very close to their target. I think any other Federal Reserve that hadn't been through the financial crisis would have been saying, we're close enough and we're happy with that. Um, so there is this fixation on pushing inflation, you know, significantly higher or, or higher to the target and above as opposed to just being uh, near the target. Uh, and, and I think that could end up backfiring on on the Fed. Uh, 
Simply because, you know, really, if you're going to focus on that last 20 basis points or so of kind of inflation that you want to achieve, you might lose sight of the fact that, you know, the rest of the economy seems to be doing well. And if there is an inflation surprise, it's going to put you well above a target that you're happy with. Um, so, you know, maybe a grind higher is better when you're approaching your target uh, than, a, than a sharp move higher. So, Drew, given the strong performance we've had across many asset classes here in 2019 and even comparing it from the lows of uh, the fourth quarter of last year, as you look out to 2020, where do you see the most opportunity? Uh, I mean, you know, the, the problem is with valuations where they are, you know, there aren't a great number, you know, there, there isn't a lot of opportunity. So I, I would I kind of take it and, and, and put it in this way. Um, you know, if you're going to be investing in the current environment, you, you want to be aware of the risks that you're taking and you want to know how those risks um, could evolve. Uh, and I think, you know, oftentimes, you know, people think they're taking one kind of risk and, and they find out that, in fact, they were taking a different kind of risk. Um, and, and so I think, you know, as we're looking ahead, you know, our view is that, you know, next year looks good. The year after, though, uh, 2021 uh, is our likely timing for a recession. Um, so, you know, when we're thinking about things, we're thinking about, you know, when's the next recession coming and, and, and how do you prepare for that? Um, and, you know, I think a lot of people and there are a lot of forecasts out there now where people have very high probabilities of recession. Uh, you know, banks are, are saying that there's a high probability of recession, but then you look at their forecasts and there's and there's no recession within their forecast. Okay. Um, and I think that's something people have to be on the watch out for. So just quickly here, Drew, 2021 recession, how do you trade that now? Uh, well, you begin to make sure that you're comfortable with all the exposure you have um, and that, you know, you're, you, you know, in the near term, at least, you know, there's still some opportunities, uh, but you don't necessarily want to, you know, um, you, you might want to date those opportunities instead of marrying them. So, Drew, interesting, on a 2021 call, I mean, it's interesting right here. Does that suggest to you that maybe the Fed doesn't have as much ammo as they think it does, that they do? Uh, you know, uh, yes. Uh, so, you know, I, I think if we're thinking about where the Fed's going to head from this point, uh, they're not going to be hiking rates next. That's not our view. Our view is that the next move will be lower. Uh, but at the same point, uh, we don't think they're going to be moving at all next year. Drew Mattis, thanks so much for joining us. We appreciate your commentary. Drew is the uh, chief market strategist for MetLife Investment Managers joining us on the phone. China is agreeing to take a harder stance on intellectual property theft as part of the ongoing trade wars. Hard to know exactly how to frame this, though, uh, given that there are not that many more details. But luckily, we have Henrietta Trays joining us now uh, to help us do that. Director of Economic Policy Research at Veda Partners joining us from New Orleans. Um, Henrietta, what did you make of the IP theft uh, news that was coming out overnight? How seriously should markets be taking this? I think it's, for, at first glance, good news. What we've seen from uh, President Xi in the past is when they are making concessions or doing things that the Americans have been asking of Beijing, they tend to announce it separately or um, in advance of any kind of deal being reached that they can present as though they've uh, just independently decided to make this move. We saw that on the financial markets access opening up. Um, they've done this IP theft uh, type of extraction several times in the last few years. 
So on the one hand, it bodes well for, hey, maybe there's something that could be announced in the coming days in terms of a phase one deal, and they're trying to get out in front of that and appear more autonomous and doing it of their own volition. But at the same time, there's not very many details. Um, one of the things that concerns me is that this is happening absent a phase one deal being announced or even a deadline or set meeting for uh, Vice Premier Liu He and USTR Lighthizer to even meet, um, let alone President Trump and President Xi meeting to ink a deal. So a lot of this is happening outside of any comprehensive details on phase one. And of course, enforcement remains the number one issue for me. So Henrietta, can you just give us a reset kind of where we are, or really where the Chinese are in terms of their thinking about how incented are they to get a phase one deal? I think right now the goal is to avert list 4B tariffs, which is about $160 billion of consumer-facing goods set for December 15th. And what I'd encourage investors to do is sort of separate out the ability of the United States and China to come to an agreement that staves off that December 15th escalation from necessarily reaching a phase one deal. Um, in my view, we are already delayed. We've already moved the goalposts. We're entering into week seven of the phase one trade deal being announced, which was set to be a three to five week, uh, you know, wrapping up final negotiations period. So we've already delayed substantially. And based on what we've seen from the administration of the last two years, they're pretty comfortable pushing out deadlines. Um, so December 15th, moving to, let's say, January, February, March 15th, or even being suspended altogether, as was the case with the escalation on lists one, two, and three, rising in their tariff rates from 25% to 30%, I think is distinctly possible and doesn't necessarily have to be a phase one deal. The problem is the longer this takes to work, the more um, other components are happening in the ether, like the Hong Kong protests or the impeachment proceedings in the United States, the lack of a USMCA vote. Time continues to tick by and phase one deals are not being reached in a vacuum. So I'm hopeful that we won't see the tariffs, but that doesn't mean we have to see a phase one deal. So phase one was supposedly soybeans, ag purchases, the easy stuff. That has run into roadblocks, we're hearing, with questions about enforcement and just how much, as far as a number figure goes, China's agreeing to buy. Intellectual property theft was supposed to be phase two, according to my understanding, because I thought that this was one of the hairier things. So can you try to square the idea that we're running into issues with soybean purchases, uh, which was supposed to be the easy stuff, and we seem to be getting something, an IP theft, which was the tough stuff? That's such a good way to phrase it. If I'm not mistaken, the September or the most recent orders were three-month lows on soybeans as China's getting Yeah, their just out today. From- Right. So, uh, really interesting development, and you, I think that's a great point that you make. Um, when it comes to ag purchases, I think we should maybe think about the diversification that we've seen from China. So the most prominent, I think, would be in terms of protein sources, having them sign that poultry deal a week or two back. That was a really tremendous uh, development that I think constitutes systemic reform, like the administration has been trying to seek out in, as you suggest, IP theft or any kind of major significant uptick in agriculture purchases. So we're seeing it on some areas, but not on others. They are importing pork to uh, at least some extent, and then the, the poultry component could be a billion-dollar industry once they get those uh, trade lines reopened. The soy piece is an unfortunate decline, but if you are dealing with, what, 40 to 50% less 
pork in China, they, they need less soy to feed them. So I guess it does track. The IP theft component, though, just like with everything else, is you really need technical details, and we have none of those. So President Trump alluded to IP theft in some way, shape, or form being included in a phase one deal, and if this is the extent of it, then it's not nearly enough to constitute systemic reform. And I think, and just to sort of sound like a broken record, it comes down to enforcement. If China is agreeing to make changes and they're hoping that the United States will back up, back off on further tariffs or take off whole baskets of tariffs, which is what I think a lot of investors are hoping for and the Chinese absolutely want, um, this is a way to incentivize the United States to get more comfortable with easing the enforcement components and taking tariffs off before they reach any kind of final agreement, you know, on phase two or phase three or what have you. Um, and unfortunately, I just don't see USGR Lighthizer agreeing to take off tremendous amounts of tariffs. One of the things that I try to advise our clients about all the time is to say, look, before tariffs come off on entire product lines and huge, you know, list 4A baskets are lifted entirely, recognize that the USTR has a comprehensive one, two, and six-month enforcement strategy that he has already laid out for us that I think will more likely result in the initial step being to reduce tariff rates not to reduce the overall basket of goods that are our tariffs. So, for instance, the list 4A tariffs, which are $112 billion worth of goods, 15%, instead of taking that, all that $112 billion off, you drop the rate from 15% to 10%, and then maybe six months later reassess. And, and that's how Lighthizer will allow for enforcement of whatever China commits to on IP or ag purchases, for that matter. So, Henry, in just about 30 seconds, what happened to the feeling maybe six months ago that the Chinese were just going to wait to 2020 and, and take their bets uh, with whoever's in the White House then? My understanding is that the U.S. hawks in China really got spooked by the administration's decision to dramatically escalate tariffs in mid-August. The White House has been walking that back ever since, as we've seen. Um, but that was the big game changer uh, in that the administration, specifically President Trump, acted way outside the bounds of what U.S. hawks in China expected. And they might be uh, better off reaching a phase one deal now and hitting the pause button, which I think is really what a phase one deal is, just an opportunity to hit pause through the elections. So hopefully we get to that. Henrietta Trace, thank you so much for joining us. Some really smart commentary there on the ongoing U.S.-China trade negotiations. Henrietta is the Director of Economic Policy Research for uh, Veda Partners, joining us on the phone from New Orleans with some, you know, some really interesting commentary as it relates to the tariffs. And that's one, we got to really focus on the December 15th tariffs. I thought what she said was really telling, the idea that China's, that we can expect China to announce concessions that they make ahead of any deal that gets reached so that it seems like it's coming from their own volition. Well, another risk on day today uh, in the markets some optimism about China trade and what a year it's been in the S&P 500, up 25% year to date. A lot of folks are starting to look forward to 2020 and see about how they should position their portfolio. Uh, we can get some good color from our next guest, Clark Kendall, president and CEO of Kendall Capital, joining us on the phone. Clark, thanks so much for joining us. Uh, you know, a lot of folks dealt with the pain, experienced the pain of the fourth quarter last year. But then we're more than rewarded by the upside here in 2019. Again, the S&P up about 25% year to date. What are your thoughts for the remainder of the year and heading into 2020? 
Yeah, so far this has been a great year. Um, we are the investment managers for the middle class millionaire in the in the Washington D.C. area. I think you know we got to try to get away from just predicting the market, but looking for opportunities within the market. Okay, so where do you see opportunities? Well, as I always say, it's sometimes it's easiest to know where not to invest. I think the 10-year Treasury at 1.9 is is not attractive to me. The IPOs, basically the IPOs that have come to market this year have come to market because they're starving for cash. Um, on the opposite side of the coin, uh, and, and on top of that, the Nifty 50, the top 50 stocks of the S&P, are at huge valuations. I think the other 450 stocks create great opportunities in today's market. Are there certain sectors, Clark, that you think maybe have been left behind? Some people were suggesting maybe some international stocks, maybe even maybe even go on the risk curve for emerging markets. What are your thoughts on where there might be some value? I think there's some great value. I like to look at things of price to cash flow. I think the fact that Schwab's buying TD Ameritrade is a great example of a company looking in that 450 looking for cash flow, the fact that Walgreens is is looking to go private. Why are they looking to go private? Because the cash flow is so strong. So I think there's some great companies out there in that 450 where the cash flow is quite strong. So going into 2020, a lot of people are expecting a bit of a resurgence uh, in economic prospects, at least in the first half of the year, and then for that to sour in the second half. That seems to be the consensus. What are you advising your clients do heading into next year? Well, I think kind of predicting how fast the GDP will grow, where interest rates will go. Short term, that's very hard to predict. Jeremy Powell basically pointed out, we're in a good spot. We have low inflation. We have low interest rates. We have low GDP. We have low unemployment. And I think we take advantage of that. We look at things like Norwegian Cruise Line is a great example of a company having strong cash flow. With low unemployment, people, it's a relatively cheap cheap vacation, things like United Rental. I mean, we're st- the economy's still growing. And, you know, they have a great profit margin, great cash flow. So I think there's continues to be great opportunities in our economy. So, Clark, one of the areas that has really been uh, the driver, both on the downside, if you think about the fourth quarter of last year, then the upside uh, this year has been uh, technology, and particularly some of the FANG stocks. Is that a group that is attractive to you, or do you think it's just uh, just too rich? I think I think we need to be very cautious with the Fang stocks and all the stocks in the Nifty Fifty. We remember at the turn of the century, um, everyone at the turn of the century had Cisco and Dell and Qualcomm in their portfolios. Qualcomm has you know revenue and earnings of, are up 17 times, yet the stock price is two thirds the value it was 19 years ago. So I think we need to be cautious, and that's why I'm saying go back to the fundamentals price to cash flow. Everyone's indexing, but I think there's great opportunities for the portfolio managers that pay attention to valuations. Clark Kendall, thank you so much for being with us. Clark Kendall, President and Chief Executive Officer of Kendall Capital, uh, joining us from Maryland.
Well, it looks like Uber has run into another roadblock in London, losing their license over rider safety uh, concerns. The stock is off about 1.3% uh, today, off about Although, 35% from its IPO. We should say they have appealed that, they so it's appealed. not a completely final thing yet. Absolutely. Let's get the latest. Uh, Nate Langson, European technology editor for Bloomberg News, joining us from our London radio studio. So, Nate, give us the latest on what's going on with Uber and the city of London. Yeah, well, a couple of years, just, it's probably worth stepping back just very briefly um, because a couple of years ago when Uber's previous full license um, was refused a renewal, uh, it immediately had to appeal and was allowed to continue operating for several months while that appeal took place. And two, just over two years on from that, the same thing has happened again. It was applying for a new license and it was refused. And now Uber is appealing that license and is able to carry on operating at least while the appeals process goes through. So cars aren't being pulled off the road. Drivers can still accept new rides. Um, but obviously, it's a huge blow in, in one of the biggest markets that Uber has outside of the US. How should we view this? Is this a political issue uh, with some of the other cab drivers in the city of London uh, winning a political battle here versus a legitimate complaint that regulators have against Uber? There is a legitimate reason for complaint here. They did TFL, who's our, our transit authority here, did find evidence of of many journeys, fourteen thousand journeys at least, being um, being made by drivers who either didn't have a license or or even had had their license revoked in the past. And I think that that speaks for itself. Uh, as to the political angle, um, if you ask any black cab driver here in London whether they like Uber, you'll get a pretty unanimous response. Uh, that they do not. And Sadiq Khan, who's the mayor of London, is on the uh, Labour Party side of the political spectrum here. And he's come out in support um, for what TfL has done as well. And there's a very big union support on the Labour side for um, for the black cab industry. So it's, it is easy to think that there's, a, there's an element of political motivation here. But fundamentally, the decision is for the regulator, which is apolitical, and that's the, the that's the body that's made this decision um, and had the final say. So, Nate, give us a sense of how the uh, the good people of London view their black taxi cab fleet. I mean, when I'm in London, I just think it's a joy to use. It's a great, great service. It's a great experience, and I contrast it with what we have had to deal with here in New York. Um, so. It, is there public support for the black cabs or are people just saying, hey, we want the cheapest ride, the easiest ride, the most convenient ride? I mean, for anyone coming in from out of town, I, I imagine there's a, there's a lot of fun in, in getting a black cab. And certainly, you know, they're good vehicles and and they're very convenient. But for, for most people who, who live here, it's basically it comes down to cost and, and who's going to be fastest. And because Uber is so pervasive across the capital, you know, there's 45,000 drivers um, it, just in London alone. It's it's easy to just to to become very, very fond of Uber. And personally, I, I use Uber many, many more times than I do a, a black cab for, for personal and for work. So the I don't think the cab industry has any reason to be any more worried than it was before. But um, I also don't think they're, they're going to lose any business to uh, people coming in from overseas who, who just liked the, the novelty, maybe, of, of taking a black cab. How crucial is London to Uber's Europe strategy at this point? 
Well, it's one of the biggest markets. Um, it's I think it's one of the fifth most uh, the fifth most lucrative city for Uber in total. Um, so it's very very important. But it's but it's not the only one. Uh, you know, Uber is active in many cities across the continent, and I think that losing London will send a, a very challenging message to other cities. But I don't think it's going to necessarily be a, a black hole for the whole European. Um, arm of the company. So, Nate, what's the next um, step for, I guess, Uber here? They're appealing it. Uh, do they have a hearing? And what's kind of the timing here? Well, the, if the timing follows uh, a similar uh, step to what we saw in 2017 when this when this happened last time, they uh, Uber filed the appeal that year in September and the hearing took place in June the following year. So there's a several month window for that appeal to even hit the first uh, the first magistrate's court. So I would I, certainly we haven't any information to suggest that, that that would be any different this time. If Uber were to lose that appeal um, in, in several months time, potentially, it could still take this all the way up to the Supreme Court here. And that's a process that's, you know, it could be measured in years rather than months. And throughout this process, Uber has the legal right to continue operating. So I certainly don't see any reason for for drivers to be to be overly concerned in the near term and certainly not before next year. Nate Lanson, thank you so much for being with us. Nate Lanson uh, covers uh, all things technology-related Bloomberg uh, European Bureau. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at PT Sweeney. I'm Lisa Abramowitz. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.